You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, uh, we have our friend Michael on all the time. His side hustle is pretty cool. He does all this stuff out in space. So we always like to talk a little science. And we haven't been able to talk science because we've been doing politics and other stuff. So let's talk a little space science, buddy. I just watched it again. Every time I watch it, I can't believe it's real, even though I know it's real. But I was watching um, the Falcon Heavy Boosters return and self-land upright again. I don't know how many times. I think they said this is the ninth time they've done it, something like that. Every time I see it, I still can't believe I'm watching it. And yet it's real. But the thing is, and you've discussed it before, but I want you to reiterate it because maybe because these things need to be repetitious in our minds before we really understand a technological advancement, right? That's one of the biggest leaps in space technology we've ever had is being able to do that and explain why that is. Yeah. Um, Elon Musk is like kind of a prototypical smart person. He has lots of ideas. Most of them are bad. But occasionally he has one that is fantastic. And the fantastic idea he had here was that throwing the booster of a rocket into the ocean is like throwing away a 747 every time you fly. And if you could land those safely, you would save millions and tens of millions of dollars on spaceflight, make spaceflight way cheaper. And it turned out the technological challenges were significant, but not insurmountable. If you have someone who's determined and will throw as much money as he can at it, that was a problem that was solvable. And so, yeah, every time I watch these, I feel like I'm watching a science fiction movie. That this is not something that we're used to rockets just sort of splashing into the ocean and capsules coming down and having a rocket land on its tail automatically is just, it seems like we're watching a science fiction movie, not reality. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. I want to ask it this way because, you know, I'm a history guy. I love my history. I think we get a little tunnel visioned on history. I think we still in the collective American consciousness think of the moonshot as cutting edge technology. And I don't think we've kind of crossed the barrier of understanding like the entire computing power of NASA at the time is probably about what your iPhone has now. Less like the technological, the technology jump to what we're doing now. We still think of the moon, like when we say achievements of mankind, oh, moonshot. Like that's number one on just about everybody's list, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was, you know, half a century ago, and we've got so much more technology and so much more computing power. And the computing power is the really big deal here because the because the the R&D and the calculations being able to do those things faster. That's the big change that I don't I think that's kind of on us, though. And maybe NASA and SpaceX should educate the public more on this. The, the technology is so far beyond there. 
but we don't have the physical achievements optically to put with that advancement. Is that a fair way to put all this? Um, I, I would say kind of. Um, many of the fundamental problems of space travel have not changed. If you're going to send something to the moon, you still need a big honking rocket. Um, I mean, that's what the Artemis mission is about. Is that a scientific it, term, big honking yes. rocket? How many yeah. honks was the Saturn V exactly? What, is this a unit of measurement or of space or time? Um, the, uh, but we still need, there are certain physics aspects of this that we need to put things into space. Now, being able to return stages, being able to use much smarter computers, that cuts the cost overall down. But we still need to make some more fundamental breakthroughs if we're actually going to send people into space on a regular basis. But I think the cost now is about a thousand, a few thousand dollars a pound to put things into space. And we need to cut that significantly if, uh, or I need to lose a lot of weight if we're going to uh, be putting people into space. Um, so, but I do think like one, a better illustration of it maybe would be the uh, recent Mars landers where you had, if there, if you haven't seen it, you can Google seven minutes of terror to see the video NASA made about how they're landing things on Mars now. And it's insane. They have this re-entry, they have these parachutes, they have this sky crane that drops it on. All of that has to be automated because it takes a few minutes for the signal to reach us from Mars. So it, it has to be robotic. We have a, a flyer on Mars, a little robot that flies around, a little drone. And that, that I think is a lot more illustrative of just how far we have come since the Viking days when we just dropped a probe on there and it would just sit there and do a little bit of surveillance. And that was it, where we have these missions now that go to these and roam around for years and do all this explanation. And we're actually going to eventually have a mission that will send uh, rocks back from Mars to Earth uh, to be uh, more fully investigated. So I think if you look at the exploration of the solar system that we've been doing, that's where you really see the breakthroughs of the last 50 years. Let's talk some old school uh, space tech, which I know you actually have a little bit of a passion for. The Voyagers are still one of my favorite things to check up on. Like I, I actually go to the website every now and then just how far that quantify it for us, non-mathematical, non-scientific people like me, just how remarkable, you know, <laughs> you're sending something up and that, you know, let's go back in time a little bit. You know, you talk about your iPhone having computer power. I mean, this, your standard microwave convection oven probably has more circuitry than the Voyagers have on them. And yet this thing just keeps pumping along and doing its job. And now it's out there farther than we ever dreamed it would be. I find this a remarkable piece of tech, even though it's kind of old school, it's kind of boring to some folks. I just find it amazing. Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, a fellow astronomer, Tim Hamilton, and I had a discussion on Twitter yesterday about what what, what is the oldest code running right now, oldest computer code. And someone brought up Voyager, which has been in space for 45 years. To give you an idea of how long that is, the people who know how Voyager works are retiring or dying. And NASA is really worried that they're not going to have enough people who understand how the spacecraft works to keep it going. And it's, it's billions of miles out there. It's outside the solar system, actually. It's into interstellar space. And it's still sending signals back. Uh, there are papers being published based on Voyager data uh, that it's, it's taking of the outer solar system. And we're learning a lot about our sun and the solar cycle uh, from what's from the data Voyager sending back. So that is, it, it is a remarkable spacecraft, uh, the, both of Voyagers. Yeah. Hammurabi would like a word on that oldest running code, by the way. Um, 
I remember as a kid, you know, I'm 42. I remember as a kid, we kept talking about the gold records they were putting on them. Remember that? Like yep. for, so, you know, it's been in the national consciousness so much. I think we just kind of forgot about it, but it's pretty cool that we have something in interstellar space and it works and it still works. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. We know the SpaceX stuff. I want to ask you about the private space travel real quick because it was a new thing. We've got a data point now. We've been doing it for a while. You know, we've got, you know, the different companies are doing it. They're put sending people up, coming right back down in different things. What's your perspective on it now? You said it was going to be a net good. It raises awareness, even though some of it's kind of, you know, celebrity stunts and stuff like this. You still think overall that it was going to be a good. We've got a year or two of them doing it now. You still feel that way? Does it feel like it's going anywhere else or does it feel like that's kind of plateaued for the moment? I think it will be a while before that kind of technology is within the reach of even, you know, upper class citizens, let alone middle class. But I, I think that it the technology will continue to improve. I mean, two years is not a lot on the time scale of technology. I, I think if um that we're going to see more and more efforts to make space travel cheaper and to make it more reliable and safer that for the so that it can be within reach. I mean even if we ever got to the point where space tourism was a thing, this would be, you know, a once in a lifetime thing, the cost of a car or something like that. So it will never be like a trip to Cleveland or something like that. But um, I, I do think we continue to make progress around this. It's, it, I mean, we're, it's not on the short time. Well, I don't think I'll be able to travel as a space in my lifetime, but maybe my kids will. Yeah. What was this? I forget who, or I would cite this, but they basically said like, until it's first class airline type fees, it's not going to be a mass marketing type thing. So until you get it down in that, you know, let's say under 10,000, get it down that five to $10,000 a seat. That's not, it's not going to be mass marketable, but you get it under a hundred thousand K you, you got a lot of people that, you know, those worldwide cruises, those are 30, 40, 50 grand. You'd have a lot of people saying, Oh yeah, this is a life savings thing once in a minute. You'd open up a large swath of people just doing it that kind of way, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, I actually had a, a, a poll on my Twitter account once asking how much people would pay to go into space. And I think the general consensus was between one and ten thousand dollars was where, where people were thinking. I don't think we'll get down to that range, but I do think we'll get down to the what you said, like, you know, round the world cruises or something like that, where this could be a once in a lifetime thing for people. And I wouldn't want to see space become the exclusive purview of the super rich. But for a while, that's kind of what it's going to be. Well, I mean, that's how airline travel started. Yeah. And, you know, so that's just I think that's going to be somewhat the nature of the bee, which is why I defended the rich people, you know, the Bransons of the world and the Bezos of the world. Like, no, you get you've got to let them break the ice, even though it's going to be a little exclusive because there's nobody else to do it. And we've talked about that before. Uh, Michael Siegel, give us something we don't know about. Um, you always surprise me with stuff cause you're smarter than me and I don't know this stuff is coming, but, uh, what should we be looking for? I know the web space telescope, the pillars of creation photo, I think got that actually got going viral because it was just such an amazing image, stuff like that. What should we be watching for in the next couple months as far as space goes? Um, I think the big things web is going to be sort of dominating the news that some of the big results on the first stars and the first galaxies and star formation are just going to start coming out. Right now, they're, they're sort of putting out the, the, the pretty pictures of stuff we know is interesting, but uh, there are, they were oversubscribed by a giant factor for their first year of operations. And so there's a lot of people gathering data now for big programs that are going to start coming out. So I, I would, I would 
pay attention to. Uh, so I would look for a lot more Hubble, uh, excuse me, JWST news in the next uh, few months. And really some of the big questions that we wanted JVST to answer are going to start, we're going to start getting the first uh, data on those. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Sadder topic. Um, we talked about the observatory down in Puerto Rico. You wrote about it. Our friend Dennis Saunders wrote about it because he's actually from there and been there a couple of times. Um, doesn't look like it's going to be replaced and or rebuilt. How much of a loss is something like that? We understand time moves on and, you know, things can't always stay the same, but, you know, we've seen other facilities get up, you know, Green Bank just got upgraded again in West Virginia. looks like it's probably going to be there for a long, long time to come. When you lose a piece like that, and you know, personally, because you've ran studies down there, you've been there. What does that do when you lose a scientific tool like that? Is there something that's just next man up and you put something else in, or is it a loss and you got to kind of adjust it, it's just a loss. Um, there is never a shortage of projects to do on telescopes. We have, you know, I do a lot of work on small telescopes, you know, 36 inch, 40 inch telescopes, where we're still finding them useful. They're still being used all the time. And so even though Arecibo was an older facility, although its uh, instrumentation had been upgraded, that's a capability that we can't replace. And so um, I, on the one hand, I understand why they're making the decision they're doing. On the other hand, I also think it's an unfortunate decision, especially because of the experts and personnel we have down there in Puerto Rico and what it means to the island to have that facility there. I think, uh, I think it's a big loss. And there are other facilities that will fill the gap as best they can, but this was a unique facility. So you don't think there's any hope either? Um, I am dubious that, that they will they will do that money tends to be to be tight and rebuilding that facility would be quite expensive so uh i wouldn't it I, i'd be delighted if it happened but i'm not banking on it 
Yeah, it's a sad situation. All right, that was a sad note. End us on a happy note, though, because you have this wonderful YouTube channel that is doing gangbusters because you've got, you know, all these thousands of followers now compared to my dozens of followers. You know, give me a little shine there, buddy. What are you doing? Uh, but I love the YouTube channel. It's really taken off. That's why I want to ask you, though, is like, obviously, because you are, you know, an astrophysicist, you've got the credentials, you've actually flown spacecraft. So you get, you've got some street cred when you go to talk about these things. It's got to lighten your heart, though, that even though it's goofy and you're talking about sci-fi stuff and not hard science, that's still entry-level science. I remember uh, James Duhon, who played Scotty, talks about how, how many engineering students over the years would come up to him and tell him, like, oh, I went into engineering because of you. And he he's like, man, I'm a retired sergeant. I don't know anything about engineering. But, you know, wounded at D-Day, by the way, for folks that don't know, you need to go read his Jimmy Duhon's story. He's amazing. He was actually missing fingers on his hand from D-Day. That's got to lighten your heart, though, that people even though it's entry-level science through sci-fi, that's still got to make you feel good, right? Yeah, um, the response, I mean, we're still a pretty small channel, about 4,000 subscribers, so uh, j just enough to... to, to uh, Humble brag alert. <laughs> uh, just enough to make me nervous that I'm going to mess something up, but not enough to, to make me famous. But um, it... Uh, it is heartening that a lot, I get a lot of really positive comments from people saying they really like the the way I explain these ideas and they find it interesting. And my last one was on multiverses. And so I got deep into like quantum mechanics and stuff like that. But uh, and, but people seem to like it. So um, so it's uh, it's it's very it's gratifying to know. And for me, I started the channel because. I like because it's the kind of channel I like to see. I like to see people who are knowledgeable about something, sharing their enthusiasm about a subject, like whether it's music or movies or military strategy or history or whatever it is. And uh, so for me, it was kind of just mostly an outlet to share my enthusiasm about science and science fiction. And uh, and seeing that that uh, has resonated with some people is very gratifying. Yeah, it's a great channel. Make sure you check it out. We will link to it. Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, completely different topic for a minute. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things real quick scientific okay because you're a science guy right <laughs> i hate to do this to you but i'm gonna do it anyway uh which was the worst and the most harmful to science was it the believe the science or was it the scientists themselves and their conduct i think it was the believe the science i think um that uh, i think a lot of scientists were trying to be clear on what we didn't know and the limitations of what we know and there were a few like um I, i've talked previously about um a few uh scientists who went on twitter a year into the pandemic and said okay here's the things i got wrong um i think that once this got into fed into the media machine and especially once you had some scientists cross over into that media machine it doesn't deal the media machine and the political machine don't deal well with uncertainty. They don't deal well with this is the best information we have. They they want certainty. They want and they want uh, absolutes and they want to say this is absolutely what we and you know I, I think that's where the, the major errors were made. But again, that's not unique to COVID. I mean we have you know we have a lot of hysterias in this country. We have a lot of things we do to mitigate what our very small dangers and very low risks uh, that we get uh, tend to be hysterical about. And 
one of the things I've blogged about quite a bit is the uh, hysteria over sex trafficking. It's not that sex trafficking doesn't happen. It's that the way people think about it and the way they try to prevent it is completely disconnected from how it actually happens and the scale of the problem. And so, again, this is more of a dysfunction of our system that was exposed. And COVID-19, again, as I said earlier, was the biggest crisis since World War II. Crises have a tendency to bring things into focus. There were a lot of things that were exposed by COVID that we were doing stupidly or wrong that we still haven't fixed. Like I remember early on, Massachusetts, when they were having their big outbreak said, all right, we'll allow doctors who are licensed in other states to work here because we, we don't have enough doctors. We won't, we won't require them to have a Massachusetts license. Like, well, why don't you do that overall? We have 50 states and they have pretty good standards. Why do I need a different license for each state? This seems like a waste of time. And that's just one example. And I think that, again, it, it, this exposed our tendency to want to talk in certainties, to make our people who disagree with us look as bad as possible, that they don't care about the problem or they actually are in favor of the problem. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about like the real grifters, like, you know, people we've talked about who are out there trying to make a buck off skepticism. I'm talking about the average person who wants to know what's going on here. What do I need to do? Wait, you told me this last week. What about this? And so forth. Yeah, I think I learned that lesson the hard way when I wrote a piece about the mask debate very early on in the pandemic. And I wasn't even all I was saying was like, because that was when they were just throwing everybody on the ventilators and they were immediately dying after you put them on the ventilators because they didn't know how to treat the illness. Right. Mm -hmm. And there, and so I talked a lot about the ventilators from personal experience and they're all like, well, what do you know about? I'm like, well, this is how I know you didn't read the piece because there's literally a picture of me on a ventilator in the middle of the piece. Like there's yeah. a picture of me in the hospital bed on a ventilator tied to the bed. And that's when I was like, you know, this this is a good way to tell whether people are serious. Like, like I know whether you read it or not because you're starting an awful that. I'm like, there's a picture. You don't even have to read the article. You can just scan it and see the picture. And like, oh, he was on a ventilator. That kind of stuff, I think, really does a lot of harm. It also exposes people. Let's be frank. Part of the problem with COVID was it just exposed a lot of people. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, I think science, we've talked about this before, but just to reiterate the point and put a bow on a lot of this. I think science has just been behind the curve on adapting to the modern world, especially social media that like, look, you can't just put letters behind your name. Now people can review your work and they can search your social media and you better be consistent. I, and that's not just them, you know, celebrities are having to do this. Politics are having to learn to do this. The news media is finding out the hard way right now that you've got to do this. I think that was a big part of it too, is I think they're just not used to mass communication. And they're having to adapt to it. And it was probably a painful lesson, but I think it was probably a necessary lesson in some ways. Yeah. And I think some people, uh, like uh, one of the ones I cite a lot is Ellie Murray, Dr. Ellie Murray. They came out looking good because they were, you know, reasonable and talked about uncertainties and so forth. And some people, uh, you know, were way too panicky and way too certain about those things. And they came out looking bad. And uh, I think that the, scientific community will have to take some time to look back and say, okay, this is not the last pandemic we're going to have. This is not the next, last time people are going to have to listen to us on a critical scientific issue. How can we communicate better with stating this is what we know, but also conveying this is the best information we have. And as with all science, it is subject to change. We're, we, we should act on this, but we should be aware that more information is going to come in. Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel, 
the most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp. And he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput, that is up at Ordinary-Times.com as it is every Thursday. The YouTube channel, your Twitter. Also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir. Uh, sure. I'm, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do. All my videos I post there uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, Actually, now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find a, my video channel. And uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, join the ongoing 2000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are. Um, but yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times. We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the uh, the military setup of those space captains too. I'm, I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one, yeah, Doctor Michael Siegel. Yeah, he was my guest. It, mm-hmm. it, I I just always love. We get so obsessed with the. You just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. Does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense. But we'll get yeah, into that. Not all officers either. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me. Like, I'm a retired sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, all the lieutenants are super short. I'm like, no, lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's. See, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Dr. Michael Siegel. Love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir. All right. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.